Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. Today I'm in The Speaker, an atmospheric old place in Great Peter Street in central London. It's inside the Division Bell area so that MPs who've taken no interest in a debate can rush along to Parliament to be pushed through to vote the right way. Isn't democracy wonderful? I'm here to have a drink with Matt Parr, who right now is Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary but spent most of his working life in the Navy and specifically commanding submarines which is one of the most testing things you can do with your life, not to say one of the weirdest. He ended up in command of all of Britain's submarines. I see you're drinking a beer. <laughs> I'd expect you to want rum or pink gin or something. Uh, the, the clear gin's a, a favourite. Um, pink gin, I think, is, uh, uh, belongs to the era of black and white films, really. Yes, that was my dad's drink. That's what... Anyway, look, a life on the ocean wave or a girl in every port, one can see that sort of attraction in a naval life. But I, I can't see the attraction of being in an expanded cigarette tube underwater with a bunch of men. Um, neither can I, looking back. I, in my last job in the Navy, when I was the head of the submarine service, I used to have to go to sea two or three times a year for a weekend to, to watch the commanding officers sort of go through their last training period um, before being qualified to command submarines. Uh, and I hated it. Um, I mean, I liked going. It was an exciting thing to do. But I just remember thinking, bloody hell, it's cramped. The food's terrible. Um, there's no privacy. Uh, it's, a, it's an unusual existence. And reflecting on why I was so keen to do it in my early 20s. And what did you decide? <laughs> I, I think you're more adaptable in your 20s than you are... <laughs> 25 years later, uh, I, I think I joined the Navy, if I'm honest, slightly ideologically more so than some of my contemporaries. I mean, I really believed the Navy was doing the right thing, and I really believed that the Cold War was a serious enterprise that, that had to be handled correctly. 
uh, and the Navy I joined in the early 80s, the submarine service was the bit of it that was doing the most in the Cold War. But the submarine service has always been a slightly controversial weapon, hasn't it? Slightly underhand. It has, and it's also had a kind of inverse glamour. I remember being at university with a friend of mine, still a friend, and we were talking, probably, you know, the end of the evening, uh, about what were the jobs that you could do that were conversation stoppers. So you meet somebody at a drinks party and say, yeah, that's my job. That was the one that people just went, wow. Uh, and we came up with brain surgeon, submarine captain, and nuclear engineer. Um, he is now a nuclear engineer, and I, I, neither of us made it to brain surgeon, but there was that kind of, oh, that's, a, that's a cachet thing to do. Um, the reality is nowhere near, near as glamorous and exciting. And when I was a submarine captain, I, I generally remember um, being introduced to friends of my wives and seeing the look of disappointment on their face. I think they expected, <laughs> <laughs> expected Charlton Heston or, or you know, um, um, what's his name? Sean Connery from The Hunt for Red October. And, and actually, most submariners are fairly phlegmatic. You have to be to get on with people in a really cramped space for a long period of time. I imagine this tube full of human beings and a disgusting thug of stale air and sweat and fart. and It sounds awful. But it probably is, but when you're in it, you don't notice. And there's something... I mean, I just loved being in a submarine. I felt I knew what I was doing. I felt the Navy trained me well for it. Uh, and the informality and sort of togetherness is very, very unlike the rest of the Navy, much less formal. Um, I mean, it's formal in one sense, in that the way things are done about engineering or operating the boat is quite deliberate and formal, but the way that the crew relate to each other is much less so, and I kind of really, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed not shaving every day, frankly, not changing my clothes much between going to bed and getting up in the morning. Um, and I felt, as I say, very comfortable in that tube. I mean, it is, it is ridiculous that I was, as a captain, you're the only person that can sit up in bed because um, everyone else has got a much narrower uh, bunk to sleep in <laughs> with somebody else on top of them. Uh, I went through that phase that we all do of sharing a bunk with somebody else. You know, when you get in, go on watch. When you get out and go on watch, they get in and sleep for a few hours. Uh, and if you're even unluckier than that, you get to sleep next to the torpedoes with people moving around. And I mean, it's a, it is a horrible lifestyle in many respects, but there's lots of us as submariners that really enjoyed it. But all, as you say, you admit that all that most of us know about submarines are having seen movies like The Hunt for Red October or Das Boot, for yeah, example. Yeah. And is it like that? Uh, I think... Das Boot is the Submariner's movie. It's the one that we'd all say. Although the boat in question is kind of tiny and basic and, you know, uncomplex by modern standards, it's got more of the atmosphere than, than, than most of the modern films, and it catches that kind of... Uh, that, that perverse pride in how unpleasant you, the, the circumstances you can live in are. Do you all wear thick woolly jumpers? Yeah, you'll get them. Yeah, they're very prized. You don't wear them when you dive very often because, you know, <laughs> it'd be a bit hot. You don't want to be any hotter and sweatier than you need to be, but you'll get so one. So inside the submarine, it's warm? Usually. Pretty, pretty, pretty warm. You just wear an uh, open-neck shirt or, you know, T-shirt sometimes in some boats, but uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty... Or a pair of overalls. 
Um, yeah, it's pretty warm most of the time. Is it noisy? Uh, no, it's not. I mean, there are bits of it where there's engines running, but a noisy submarine would be a useful submarine uh, because it would give itself away. Uh, and you're never aware, you're never away from the kind of whir of machinery or the, 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 the noise of ventilation systems uh, or even people, of course. Uh, but, I mean, there's not many, there's, there's very few places you have to wear ear defenders. All those World War II movies, when people on a submarine are afraid of being depth charged, they creep around trying to make as little noise as possible. Is that still happening? Uh, I mean, I don't think people are whispering to each other under, underwater, but I think what, we, what you do try and inculcate in the crew, that unnecessary noise gives you away. So there'll be occasions where, you know, in the crew quarters, people can watch a film. Uh, we turn those off at times when there's a reason to. Uh, people aren't encouraged to make any noise going up and down ladders. Partly that's, I mean, th th you can generally give yourself away like that, but I think it's also just to get into the crew's mind that quietness and stealth is the whole point of having a submarine. Is that the thing you fear most in a submarine, discovery? Yes. Uh, the whole purpose of a submarine is, I mean, there's a kind of nobody's your friend, uh, you don't want to get detected by anybody. Uh, the whole getting detected is, is potentially hazardous, uh, but it just defeats the whole purpose of having a submarine. The, 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 you know, we, we have a phrase in submarines, which is uh, submarine, submariners never cheat and rarely lie. Uh, and <laughs> the idea is you do cheat. It's, you know, the, sub, the whole purpose of a, a fair fight um, is the antithesis of the being of a submariner. You want to have a fight where it's not fair, it's all stacked in your advantage, because people don't know you're there. Uh, that's your own, that's your one big advantage as a submariner, people not knowing where you are, and so you work very hard to preserve it. Yeah, but you're bloody vulnerable. Uh, you're not as vulnerable as you think. It's quite hard to sink and detect a modern submarine. Is it? Yeah, yeah, very hard. Do they still use depth charges? Yep, yeah. We don't have many of them in, I don't think, we have, we have relatively few in the UK. I'm not sure we've got any, to be honest, naturally, but the Russians still use them. I'm sure the Chinese would use them. Uh, but you've got to be pretty accurate with a depth charge to sink a modern submarine. But getting blown up when you're underwater can't be much fun. I don't even know anything about it. <laughs> um, uh, if the hull collapsed, you know, you, you wouldn't know anything about it. It wouldn't be, you know, it's not kind of... I think that the inventing a scenario in which the water creeps up over a period of time and for all its cinematic attractiveness, it's not very realistic. But you read the accounts of what happened on that Russian submarine, the Kursk, where they, there was a retreat into one of the compartments that they <laughs> sealed off, and then they died there slowly over a period of hours. They did. Uh, but again, that was a boat that sank in relatively shallow water, where we don't spend a huge amount of time operating. Uh, and I reckon probably 90% of the crew died almost instantly. Uh, there were a few probably unlucky people that, that, that lived a day or so, uh, as the water rose around them. But a fire on a submarine... Fire is, one of, fire is one of the scariest things, and um, you've got uh, a lot of things which are very flammable. Uh, a lot of the boat is operated by hydraulic oil. Hydraulic oil is kept at really high pressure inside pipes for operating periscopes or hydroplanes or valves operated by hydraulics. And if you ever have a pipe burst, then you get atomized very flammable oil coming into the atmosphere very quickly. So 
things like a hydraulic burst or a fire uh, are, are yeah, something you train repeatedly to, to, to deal with. And there's a difference between the rest of the Navy and submarine service in that uh, the level of training in dealing with emergencies like a fire in the submarine service is much higher than it would be in the rest of the Navy. Um, not because they're any better, just because it, it needs to be. So the nearest person to the scene will be expected to do all the right things, whether he was a chef or an engineer. Do you have women on submarines? Uh, we have women on some submarines, and we have had for uh, a small number of years, you know, six, six or seven years maybe. And at the moment, we only have them on um, the Vanguard class, which is the one that carries the Trident weapon system. It's huge. The way the accommodation's set up, it's relatively easy to segregate in small numbers. Uh, and we didn't have them on any submarines I served in. Uh, and I think when I last checked, the Navy was looking at ways to integrate them into the modern hunter-killer submarines. That's a nuclear-powered submarine, but without the Trident, you know, intercontinental it's nuclear a weapon. It's a recipe yeah. for tension, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, uh, there's, there are different schools of thought, and it's, a, it's been a relatively controversial and... Um, uh, what's the word? It's generated quite a lot of heat, the whole idea of having women at sea in submarines. Actually, the number of volunteers has been relatively low. Uh, I'm not surprised, <laughs> not, uh, But I think the Navy's view, and it's quite understandable, is that in the modern world, to deny women the chance to serve in any bit of the armed forces is just the wrong move. And so uh, I don't think there's a... As of maybe two years ago, there's not a single bit of the armed forces that women can't serve in. used to be all, ma all fast jet pilots were male. Not any longer. Uh, it used to be the submarine service, the Royal Marines, the infantry, and one by one, all these have been opened up to, to, to women who want to have a certain sort of career. It is fair to say that you know that, that the number of it was not exactly a stampede of women that wanted to serve in submarines. But what about sex? That would be awful. I've never had sex in a submarine, Jeremy, so I'm not really qualified to to, to say. But uh, uh, that's probably too much detail. There have been a couple of. Um, mini scandals, uh, much publicised. There is a kind of the school of thought that says if you lock men and women up, uh, young men and women by and large lock them up in uh, cramped circumstances for extended periods, um, don't be surprised what happens. And there have been a couple of instances that have demonstrated that. What about fresh air? Do you crave fresh air? Uh, no, no, not really. Uh, on the list of things you're deprived on, um, that's not one of the things that I craved the most while I was away. Uh, you make your own air, you can take, it's not fresh, but you don't notice it because you get used to it and it's probably a bit smelly. It's not until you surface and you open the hatch that you notice just how smelly the air you've been breathing is. But you don't crave fresh air. I used to crave colour. Uh, pretty much everything in a submarine is grey, black, steel, uh, and there's very little colour. So you don't really see a, the blue of a sky or the green of a forest or you don't really see vibrant colours. Nobody wears vibrant clothes or it's all very grey and washed out. But the attraction of exotic places and the horizon and sunshine and sand and strange people, that's all, that's all absent from us. Yeah, it is. Like, yeah, it? yeah, I always thought I'd make a good prisoner um, because, you know, you... Uh, I think if it was a lesson I learned looking back, it's that humans are significantly more adaptable. And you look at these films of, you know, 
World War II prison camps or you know, dreadful circumstances that people lived in. And having been a submariner, I, I kind of get it. You, you adapt to whatever circumstances you've got and place almost undue emphasis on the little things. So, you know, very occasionally the Navy would show a huge amount of largesse on a Sunday night and hand around some chock ices <laughs> for a film. And that was a morale high day. You know, when you can have a chock ice any minute of the day, a chock ice doesn't count. But when it's a treat, it, it, it makes your day. So I think humans are much more adaptable than most people that haven't had to have those adaptations realise. How many of the crew know where they are? Uh, someone just won't be interested. Uh, on It depends on the class and where you're going. On some boats, uh, the captain or second-in-command will daily tell everybody where they are and what they're doing, and people can come and do, come and look at the control room and see where we are. Some people just aren't interested, you know. If you're an engineer back working on the reactor, you might vaguely interested where you are, but you're mostly interested in how the reactor and the engineering compartment's doing. On Trident, and I never served on the Trident submarines. Uh, I served on Polaris, which was its predecessor. Uh, and on a Trident submarine, uh, a relatively small number of people know where the boat is. Uh, and a much smaller number of people know where it's allowed to be and where it's going. Uh, and that's because um, we've got to be very protective of the patrol areas of um, the strategic deterrent submarine because the whole purpose of it is no one can ever find it and if you know where it typically goes then you, you, you've got a head start in looking for it. You come across as confident uh, that is a requirement of the job I suppose isn't it? Uh, um, yeah, I think I'd, most be, I'd be terrified of being found. Uh, no, I mean, there's a. The ocean's a lot bigger than people think. If you fly over something, if you fly over the Atlantic, you think it's, you know, okay, you can fly back from the States in whatever, four or five hours over the sea. Actually, if you're going at the pace of a ship or a dive submarine, it's enormous. It's absolutely huge. Um, and so there are ways of finding submarines under the water. Uh, there are ways of you know, detecting that someone's looking for you. Uh, the advantage is all with the person that doesn't want to be found, particularly uh, if your submarine is built to be difficult to detect. So th this is a really technical and slightly secret kind of discussion, but the, 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 the ways of detecting submarines and the ways of making them undetectable uh, have been a kind of battle that's ebbed and flowed between, frankly, the West and particularly Russia throughout the Cold War and, and to this day. Now, you get to be a commander of a submarine by passing the, the, the so-called perisher right. course. Yeah. Why is it called perisher? Uh, I think it, well, it's, it's over 100 years old now. Uh, I think the, the, you, you would either pass or perish was the original phrase, and if you fail the course, typically that was the end of your career. There's no, you don't get a second go at it. Uh, you, the failure rate has been pretty consistent for... Uh, I mean, not every submariner gets selected for it, but of those that get selected for it, the failure rate's been pretty constant all the way through 100 years. And it's about one in between one in four and one in three fail. Is that high? It's higher than most. Uh, uh, I mean, as, as you said at the start, I work in policing now, and policing have courses. Uh, 
uh, and some of them are excellent for training senior commanders for counterterrorism incidents or sergeants exams or all those sorts of things. Um, there is a phrase in the, in the services that a course that you can't fail isn't worth doing. So, I mean, it's, it, you see the point, it's kind of, it's, it's uh, and the harder the course is to fail, or that the easier the course is to fail, and the more people fail it, there's an element of the higher the kudos of the people that have passed it. Now, we don't fail people just for the sake of making those of us that have passed it feel good. We fail because we don't think they're the right people to, they haven't got the right characteristics to, to, to be submarine commanding officers. What that doesn't do is make them a bad person, and indeed, it doesn't make the people that, that have failed the course good people. We've had people that have passed the course uh, and who have frankly been near employable past the stage of commanding a submarine. Can't go any further, they're just not really suitable. Um, and we've had people that have failed the course that have gone on to achieve relatively high ranks in the Navy. Not through commanding submarines. So it doesn't make you a good person or a bad person to pass or fail. It says something particular about the way your brain works and the way you interact with people and the way you calculate. When do you learn whether you're good enough? Uh, when you do the course. Uh, the course is designed to put you under pressure. Uh, it's like many good courses. It, 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 it's designed to allow you to learn something about yourself, what your limits are, uh, what your weaknesses are. Uh, and what's interesting is that I think over the years, almost as many people put their hand up during the course and say, do you know what, this isn't for me, I don't want to do it as are told it's not for them and they ain't going to do it. So you'll quite often get people go through the course and say, no, do you know what, I, I, I just can't be a submarine captain. It's, uh, it's, I thought I wanted to. I've been aiming at it for 10 years. I know I won't be comfortable. I don't want to do it. They say it's the toughest selection course in the world. I think, I think others would argue with that. I think the uh, special forces in the UK would, would, would argue with that. It's very different. Uh, it's, um, uh, it, it, it strikes me as one of those things that's very difficult to prepare yourself for. Uh, you've got to have a brain that works in a certain way, uh, and you've got to have uh, a slight degree of self-assurance, but also confidence. Yeah, there's a degree of confidence about it as well, but fundamentally... Um, if your brain can't calculate in certain ways, you're going to find the whole course really, really difficult. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the differences between how a submarine commander and someone like the rest of us looks at the world is presumably the three-dimensionality of it. That you've got to think of up and down and sideways. If you don't have, if you don't have instinctive spatial awareness, you're going to really struggle. So um, one of the techniques, just, just imagine this. You put a periscope up and you've got a horizon. And the periscope takes, you know, if there's 360 degrees in a circle, the periscope can't look at all of it. It's not particularly wide angle. It's looking at maybe 15 degrees. So you've then got to put it up and then sweep around the whole horizon in about 20 seconds, put the periscope down and have a near perfect f- vision uh, of what you've just seen that you're then able to describe to people. So you'll say, yeah, you think that merchant ship is at five miles away, it's actually three and a half miles. And you think it's steering north, it's actually steering a few degrees to the right of that. Oh, and there's a fishing vessel that we, you know, that, 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 that's, that's nowhere near as close as you think, it's just very noisy. Uh, and, and you've got to have, be able to relate that mental picture. And you've got to have a, 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 a strong instinct for um, a, a bit like really good drivers have for what other people are going to do next and where they're likely to go. Uh, and add to that, you've got to have uh, the ability, you've got to know how submarine works, you've got to know uh, how all the systems relate to each other so that if things break or aren't available, you know what the right thing to do is. And lastly, um, and possibly just as important, perhaps more importantly, uh, you've, you've just got to not piss off people. So the crew of the boat that people are being trained on, if they really react badly to somebody because they're arrogant, because they're bullshitters, um, because they're unfriendly, they're just unlikable and untrustworthy in some other way, then it's an uphill task to, to get through because the people that are making the judgment about whether you're going to pass or not will be very aware of how you're going down with with the crew and the last thing they want to do is uh, is impose somebody that the crew's going to really dislike on on a ship's company before they go to sea. It sounds to me from what you were saying a moment ago that what's really being tested is the sort of person you are. Of course, there's an element of have you got technical skills but it's it's absolutely all the best courses are, are about what sort of person you are and as I said at the start, you come out with a, with a much, ideally, with a much better knowledge of yourself. Good and bad. We all do. And you said that if you, if you fail the course, that's it in submarines. You're not in submarines anymore. Yeah. There was, I, I was at sea as an admiral um, with a, a really good friend of mine who was the teacher of the course. And we were, uh, and I'm going to be careful, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody here, but it's the last weekend of the course, and it's been running for a, a number of weeks, months in fact, but the sea, it's, they've been at sea for a few weeks, uh, and we're getting right to the end where I think there were three or four students left, <laughs> and uh, there was a question about how many of them will pass, uh, and whether they're all okay. And one of them did something that made me wince. Uh, and we rectified the situation. It wasn't, you know, particularly dangerous. It wasn't dangerous at all, but it, 
he got the boat into a difficult situation. Uh, teacher, the person who runs a course, came to say to me, so, oh, that wasn't great. And I said, no, it wasn't great. Um, do you think I'll fade him? I said, tell you what, let's have lunch together. You know, we'll go and have, let's leave it for a bit. We'll have lunch, think about it. Then you come and tell me what, you're gonna, what you think we should do. Right. And off he went, and we had lunch, and we let the, let the thoughts settle down a bit. And he came back to me and said, I'm going to fade him. And I said, uh, my friend, if you hadn't, I would have told you to. You're absolutely right to fade him. He, he can't be a submarine captain. And it was one decision. It was one thing that he did that just made me think, this bloke's not safe. I can't, I can't send sailors under my command uh, to sea with this bloke in charge of them. I, if something happened, how would I feel? Uh, and that's always a test that the teacher, the person that runs a course, runs, which is, if something went wrong and we lost people, and even if we never knew why, would I be thinking the back of that mind, it was that bloke that I thought was marginal? Uh, and if you're thinking about that about someone, they need to fail. And yet, presumably, the bloke who collided with the French submarine had passed the course. Uh, yes, he had. <laughs> yes, he had. Um, was that you? No, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. I actually wasn't serving the submarine service at the time it happened. Um, I do know an awful lot about it, uh, and it's a really complicated thing. And the Navy rightly, at the end of that, for reasons I really can't go into, the Navy rightly dis decided that nobody was to blame with that. What about, just, the, just, what, about the, what about the bloke who drove his submarine into an oil tanker? He'd been the teacher on the course. Uh, an oil tanker? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, 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 of Gibraltar. Um, uh, I can't remember the details. That's not good. I can't I remember the details, but the submarine service has had some proper accidents in, in recent years. Um, when I was a young lieutenant, we had a terrible tragedy when a boat sank a, a Scottish trawler uh, and killed four people on board. I think it was four on board. Uh, we had a boat hit the Isle of Skye uh, at quite at speed and caused millions of pounds worth of damage. We've had a number of these. Um, we do operate our boats, I'll say, more aggressively, but, but we push them harder than uh, some other submarine operating nations um, because we want to make the training as realistic as we can. And I'm not, of course, I wouldn't excuse or... <laughs> limit the importance of having accidents, particularly nuclear submarines. Uh, but um, uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a it's it's really unfortunate when it happens. Unfortunate, but not, every, but not every time when it happens is there somebody to blame. And the one the collision with the Frenchman was was it's, it would be believe me, it's very difficult to blame anybody for that. I'll take your word for it, of course. Now these are all. I'll come back to the point I make. That that was a Trident submarine that had the collision with the French. Those boats are designed to be almost undetectable. And so are the French versions. And they were undetectable. <laughs> so it would seem. <laughs> yeah. These are all peacetime exercises, of course. Uh, uh, Is they, that they boring? Knowing um, uh, uh, everything's I, an exercise. I, not everything's an exercise. Um, we do... I come back to my earlier... Point. The great thing about the submarine is nobody knows where it is. So we put submarines in places, uh, on, not on training exercise, but on live operational patrols uh, to do stuff that we don't tell people about. So a submarine is a very versatile asset. Uh, uh, can do a range of things. It's not just out torpedoing people and practicing it. Uh, it's a fantastic intelligence gathering platform. Uh, it can fire land attack missiles, even if it from, from uh, uh, places and has done. 
Uh, it can land special forces. So there's a whole stuff that we can, whole lot of stuff it can do that isn't exercising. And exercising isn't as boring as you think because I think that the, the whole ethos of a submarine is people recognise if you're going to operate a 33-foot diameter tube that's full of a nuclear reactor, enough explosives to blow up a small town, hydraulic oil, very high-pressure air, some horrible chemicals, um, oh yeah, 120 people, and you're going to sink it and run it close to potential dangers, uh, and then you expect it to surface and everyone to be safe and well, uh, and you expect it to do all that, uh, then everyone recognises that the degree of training involved in running something like that is enormous. So the kind of training bill for the submarine service as a whole uh, is huge. Uh, it's, you know, you've got people who are operating nuclear reactors, you've got people who are weapons experts, you've got people who are damage control experts, you've got medical and uh, radiation experts. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wide range of uh, skills and they've all got to be trained. So you don't really resent the training thing, it's part of what prepares you for what you do. But all these people could be doing their jobs in a floating vessel, which we all understand, instead of which they're in a tube at the bottom of the sea. And they're pretty much all volunteers. <laughs> you, uh, you're clearly shocked that such people exist, Jeremy. But, uh, but uh, that, believe me, they do. Uh, you mean there are some who are not volunteers? I think we've had, over the... I mean, since I joined the Navy, there have been a small number of pressed men in a couple of years. Uh, where they've been kind of, I don't, I mean, people can always, it's not the old days, you, you are allowed to leave the Navy if you don't want to, but they've been told that they really need to go into the submarine service and you can come out again, but, but, but give, it, give it three years or five years or whatever. Submariners get paid more as well. And quite a lot of people find that after their five years of, you know, forced service in submarines, they actually got quite used to having the extra money and no, no thanks, they'll, they'll stay where they are. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, it's almost entirely volunteer. Can I, you can don't need to answer this because I can see you it could be construed as political. But you mentioned pressed men. That's a reference to the history of the Royal Navy. Yep. When you look at this country's nautical history, what do you think about how the Navy is now? It's small, it, uh, isn't it's it? It's small, but it's flipping impressive. And I sometimes think we get all these stupid, generally stupid, more admirals and ships... Uh, uh, we've only got 13 ships, we haven't. We get all these kind of, mm, latest one I saw was, we're smaller than the Italian Navy. Um, the Navy's just built the two biggest warships it's ever had. Uh, they're very, very significant. Um, there's an old story that for a submariner, everything's either a submarine or a target, so they're very big targets, but <laughs> they are ours, uh, and they're really impressive, and the... The project to build those ships has been a national triumph that we do ourselves down with. They were a bit over budget, but not hideously. They were a bit late. But there isn't a nation that's done what we've done in building an aircraft carrier that good, that quickly, that cheaply. No one else has done it. They're two enormous virility symbols, aren't they? <laughs> no, they're not. Um, the logic for them was laid down in a defence review in 97-98 under the Blair government. It's lasted every defence review since. Um, there, that there is a case to be made that the Navy, in building them, has had to sacrifice some other capabilities and some other 
projects. So there aren't enough escorting ships. The, we we're almost world, we probably are world leaders at mine sweeping and mine hunting, but the capability we've got is getting old and needs an update. Um, we haven't got as many attack nuclear submarines as we'd have liked to have built, uh, so they're hard pressed and hard worked. So there have been some sacrifices made, but the difference between our navy and let's say Italy is we do everything from big aircraft carriers with world-leading jets on them, I mean, the best, the best jets at sea anywhere, all the way to fabulously sophisticated nuclear submarines. Um, the problem the Navy's had, we do everything at small scale, and that makes it difficult. So you can either afford lots of stuff or you can afford really good stuff, and we've concentrated on really good stuff. But the Navy's shipbuilding program at the moment is really positive. Uh, there's all sorts of things that are grounds for optimism. Uh, there isn't a single person that served in the Navy or currently serving that wouldn't like more of it. But compared to, the, I mean, the Army has got, uh, the Army is in, in, in worse shape. Uh, a lot of its kit is much older and tired, and some of the projects it's wanted to, be, to bring in have been, I suppose you might say, diverted by Iraq and Afghanistan, where it got a lot of new kit, particularly for for those, air, th those arenas. Um, so, I mean, I, the, the, the whole, we do talk ourselves down a lot, uh, but defense on the whole isn't as bad as people say it is, and the Navy in particular, uh, it, I think, is doing really well. Do like you more. feel that people in this country are aware enough of their maritime history? Do you know, I, I say, I've obviously got lots of friends still in the Navy. Um, I hadn't realized when I was in the Navy how little the public care about the armed services. So at the Inspectorate for Policing and Fire that I now work at, uh, we have a press team, you know, a media team, uh, and they're every day compiling stories about the police. There's a story about the Navy. Occasionally, maybe every two weeks, something might pop up. Every day there are stories about policing. Every day. The, I mean, the, the, the British public's understanding of and... Uh, frankly, interest in defence uh, is, is much lower than I'd realised when I was right in the middle of it. I think that's an inevitability about doing a kind of job like that, but I thought everyone was talking about the Navy all the time and the defence all the time because that's the world I lived in. When you step out of it, you realise they're just not. you just got rubbish PR people in the forces. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't answer that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, another example, though, Jeremy, as... As an admiral, or even as, as a junior to that, but, but no, particularly as an admiral, uh, and I worked in the MOD and uh, yeah, uh, uh, and you know, worked uh, head of submarine services and head of navy operations. Um, I would not be allowed to speak to the media any format without pretty, or even give a speech at a, you know, anything with, with non-service people present, without the minister's office uh, clearing what I was going to say. The contrast with where I am now, where you know the Home Office gives us our money, but we're an independent inspectorate, I can say what I like about anything in policing. I mean, I've, I've got to say stuff we've got evidence for to avoid being ridiculed, but you know, there's no control over it. And part of the part of the problem with defence and PR is uh, um, is the fact that it's got politicised. So people feel constrained about saying things. But it's right; it's politicised, isn't it? 
but we, we don't of course want, it's right. We don't it's want any pipsqueak admiral or general <laughs> telling us what he personally wants or she personally wants. We want to know what people we've elected want to have done. I think that uh, uh, agreed. However, I think that shouldn't be allowed to constrain getting out the message about what the forces are achieving on the, on the country's half on, on a more regular basis. Who are the best to train against? I think to train against, uh, as a submariner, uh, the most competent anti-submarine forces were British. Uh, they were our own, and that's not just the Navy, but also the Royal Air Force, uh, who've got a, a finger in this pie, were, were high quality. Stepping outside uh, Brits, I'd say uh, Norwegians and Dutch were, the, were the, where the real quality lied, uh, in, in small quantities. But after I commanded the submarine, I then had a job, which was the head of uh, the training organisation for the Navy, which is down on the south coast, which trains all our surface warships and a lot of the, uh, the foreigners. Uh, so we'd have German, Dutch, Turkish, Greek, occasional Italian. Uh, and the best there? Portuguese. Really? Yeah, they're brilliant. In, my, in the time I was there, they were, without fail, excellent. Uh, and they had a relatively small navy, but it was hugely well maintained, uh, and their team was very, very professional. To, I mean, it was kind of to, well, standing, not a standing joke. I mean, they were just really good. Portuguese, Portugal's a navy with a proud, long history, and it's a seafaring nation. Um, they're not rich, they're not big, uh, but what they do, they did really, really well. Uh, I also remember an absolutely charming incident where we had a Chilean ship come and train. We'd just sold them this ship, ex-Royal ex Navy, sold to the Chileans, uh, and they came over and spent some time, and the final thing they did was we trained them up as a crew, and they were brilliant, lovely people, very professional. Uh, so it's not all in the, in, in the places you expect. And there are some of the, I'm not going to name names, but there are some of the big well-recognised navies that were just nowhere near, nowhere near the quality. What do you miss about the virtues of the forces? Well, I, I've stepped into a job which is... I mean, there are some similarities between police and fire and rescue services and the forces in that they're uniformed, they're pretty hierarchical, they tend to attract people who are team players. Um, I think... I think what I miss, well, no, I don't miss it, I'm lucky, but I think one of the contrasts I have is that um, if you're in the forces, it, 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 it's not just a job, it's a way of life. I know that's a dreadful cliche, but you tend to mix with the same people that in and out of work. Uh, much of your gossip and your, you know, your hobbies very often involved with the people you work with, uh, and you definitely feel that you're all on the same side and everybody's interests are served by the same thing. Um, there aren't many worlds like that. There aren't many worlds. There aren't many organisations where, in general, uh, something goes well for one bit of it uh, and other bits of it don't slightly, you know, uh, flinch in the, in the fact that someone else is getting... I think when things go well in the Navy, everybody tends to feel it the same way, and I'd say that's across defence as well. Um, I have a daughter. She's 25, uh, and she, she works for... Uh, uh, in I won't say what, but in the private sector in London, and she's doing really well, and it's a challenging job. 
I took her out with me to uh, uh, to do some Navy winter sports over the over this year, and just dragged her along. She wanted to come and have a go, uh, and she was blown away by the kind of sense of team spirit, comradeship, friendliness uh, that, that the the Navy people doing it had. Uh, you take it for granted after years and years in the forces. Uh, not everything's perfect, of course it's not, but it is a it, it, it is a team sport in a way people outside it tend not to recognise. I'll tell you a good story about Polaris. I don't want to tell you this, it's an old story, but Peter Hennessy is a world expert on this. Trident is a very sophisticated system. It's very accurate, it's very long range, it's got mode after mode of targeting. Um, Polaris, was, Polaris was less so, it's 50s, early 60s technology. And the way it works, of course, is that the boat doesn't really know the targets. So you might have a target which is called, you know, like a car number plate, just a bun random bunch of letters and numbers. Uh, and they're all on tapes, and you get a signal from Northwood saying, target missile. Well, at the moment, of course, none of our missiles are targeted. That was the Brown government detargeted them. It doesn't take long to retarget them, but, but it was a good political step. So um, if a missile's targeted, the crew just know that missile four is targeted at GO407 or something. Um, and if you look, all you knew that if you happened to have the boat in a position that GO407 wasn't in range, you'd get a flashing alarm to say, you're not in range. <laughs> the, 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 there was a backup on Polaris. And do you remember those dimometer things that used to, yes. used to spin around and then click it on a letter and then spin it around again? Yeah. Series of concentric zones with Latin longs that you could just dial in. So you could dial in a Latin long and should you need some guidance about what lat and long you wanted to guide it, you had the deluxe version of the Philips World Atlas. <laughs> <laughs> or the, no, actually, I think it was the Times Atlas of the World. So that you could kind of... Funny. That was the submariner, Matt Parr, talking to me in the speaker in Westminster. Sadly, that was pretty much my last trip to any pub before the pandemic hit. But that hasn't stopped us recording nor indeed from being locked in. Next week I'm having my notional pint of ale with the writer Tom Holland, a brain box of staggering proportions and surely one of the very few people who could successfully turn a PhD on Byron into a gothic vampire novel. Lately he's been tackling the not insubstantial subject of the making of Western society and as you might hope, he's got some jolly interesting views on it. Join us for that if you fancy and in the meantime stay safe.